Last Lord's Day, we began in earnest to understand this wonderful little letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. We began, of course, with verses 1 through 3 of the first chapter, seeing how Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were communicating how they were praying so fervently for the Thessalonian church. And exactly how were they praying for these Christians in Thessalonica? Well, if you were with us, you heard that the key truth with which Paul wants the believers there to know is seen in that first verbal idea of this letter, and it is contained for us in that phrase of verse 2, we give thanks to God. We give thanks. Paul and his associates were in perpetual prayer mode for these precious believers. And remember, last time I spoke of Paul's internal spiritual motivations to intercede for these Thessalonians. Do you remember? He first prayed for their unity. Do you see that there in the text where it says, grace to you and peace, chapter 1, verse 1? That's a a prayer for God's favor and for His shalom, for the well-being of the Thessalonians, that they would be unified under the banner of grace and peace. And then also, this unity is based upon that phrase that's mentioned there in verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians, here's the unifying agency of what God does in bringing us together in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our unity. We ought to pray for our unity, just like Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are doing for the Thessalonians. And then I said also that there is a sense of how our prayers should also be based upon Paul's own selflessness. He wasn't concerned uh, about himself. His focus wasn't on himself. Why do I know that? Because in verse 2 it says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. He was thinking about them. He wasn't focusing on himself particularly. He was focusing on them. We thank God for you. That's a, that's a great teaching for us. That's a great conviction for us to turn our own prayer lives to others and not think so much about ourselves. You say, well, I have my own needs. I have my own desires. I, I have prayer needs. Well, if you focus on praying for others, they will focus on praying for whom? For you. There's a wonderful reciprocity there. And then thirdly, We learned from last time that prayers were being prayed with regularity. Notice what he says in verse 2 again. We're constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Constantly, with regularity. This is is how we pray. This, This is a wonderful model for prayer. This shows us as fellow Christians why we should pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ And that is because we are so highly motivated to minister to them. We want to minister to them with our unity, praying for it, beseeching God for it, working to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we 
want to be selfless in our prayers. We want to be praying for others, knowing that they'll be praying for us. And we want to do it with regularity because we are constantly thinking of giving thanks to God for those around us, the ones we love, the ones we care for. But this, of course, isn't all that Paul shows us in verses 1, 2, and 3. I mentioned that that verbal idea about giving thanks to God had three what are called adverbial participles, three ways that they were giving thanks to God. And the first one, of course, is, as I said in verse 2, mentioning you in our prayers. The second, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So how did they give thanks to God? By constantly mentioning them in their prayers and also by remembering before God three things, work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. And hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember I said to you, It's a faith which produces work, a faith which produces work. That's that's a great way to pray, praying for our fellow Christians as we thank God for their ever-increasing faith as shown in their work for God and His people. It's a great way to pray for people. You know, when you find yourself stumped in prayer, what do I pray for next? What what do I pray for so-and-so? Rather than trying to think of something that comes out of your mind, why don't you think of something that comes out of God's mind? Praying for their work which produces faith. Or, in this case, the faith which actually produces the work of prayer. Well, what a, what a great way to pray for somebody. I pray that your faith will ever enlarge, ever increase, ever deepen, so that you can do more work for the kingdom. What a great way to pray. And then he says, love, which prompts labor, labor of love. Praying for our fellow Christians as we thank God for their ongoing love for the Savior and for us as fellow believers, as shown in their desire to labor for him, laboring in the gospel, laboring in ministry. What a great prayer to pray. Paul's a model for us in this. And then thirdly, hope, which propels steadfastness or enduring. What kind of prayer is that? It's praying for fellow Christians as we thank God for their forward-looking view of Christ's return. They're they're propelled to be steadfast, to, to be enduring all of the suffering and challenges of life because of their forward-looking view that Jesus is coming again. Well, that's a great way to pray. Praying for fellow believers that their steadfast endurance would propel them to keep seeing the hope that is in front of them. What a way to pray. Mentioning, remembering. And then I stopped right there before we got to verse 4. And that third participle that explains we give thanks to God always for all of you is in verse 4, and it's that third participle, and it's this, knowing, knowing. Do you see it in the first part of verse 4? For we know. That's the way it's translated here in the ESV text, but it's that I-N-G word, knowing. 
So you, you've got a mentioning, verse 2. You've got a remembering, verse 3. And now you have a knowing in verse 4. So what is he saying about this knowing? Well, let me be less technical about the grammar of the passage, you know, talking about verbal ideas and, you know, adverbial participles. You know, that's like your school marm. Now, children, we need to know the grammatics of the passage. Yes, we do. This is God's Word. It's very, it's very important. But, but I want to show you both doctrinally and practically how verses 4 and the first part of verse 5 link to what has just preceded it. So everything that I just did by way of a couple of minutes of review are very important as it relates to what I'm about to say in verse 4 and the first part of verse 5. How so? Well, it's something like this. Mentioning these Thessalonian believers constantly in their prayers, which motivates them to regularly intercede for them, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy remembering their their work, their working faith, their laboring love, their enduring hope is critical because of this, because we know something. What is it we know, Paul? Here's what we know. We are knowing that our loving God has chosen the true believers in Thessalonica to be delivered from the wrath to come. This is the knowing. Do you see it? For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Now we're about to get into the deep waters. And this is not a bad thing. This is a glorious thing. This is glorious. This introduces us, this phrase, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you is quite controversial. For scores of professing Christians, but which frankly shouldn't be. It shouldn't be controversial. I'm, of course, referring to the doctrine of divine election. Let me see if I can show you from God's Word why this doctrine is so critical for us. And once it's affirmed by us as being exactly what God's Word teaches, how marvelous and sweet a doctrine it is for us to taste it. It's so sweet. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And it's what Paul is praying for and about them. He's mentioning in his prayers this giving of thanks. He's remembering their working faith and their laboring love and their enduring hope, knowing, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's that's a part of his prayer. In fact, some some commentators believe, and, and I would be one of them, that Verses 1, the last part of it, the church that is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ there in Thessalonica, grace to you and peace, all the way through verse 10 is all, in a sense, one long prayer of Paul. And I think they're right. And so this doctrine of divine election is apparently so sweet-hearted to Paul that he's actually including it 
in his prayer to God about the Thessalonians. And, and they ought to be seeing as a model of prayer, praying this right back to the Lord about Paul and Silvanus and, and Timothy and other believers around Asia Minor and other places, this whole area of Macedonia. They ought to be using this as a model prayer, and it includes the doctrine of divine election. So for this morning, I want us to work our way through four great realities. Four great realities in the affirming of the doctrine of divine election from 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and the first part of verse 5. Here's the first one. The message. Let's call it the message. Paul praises God for the knowledge of divine election. He praises God just for the knowledge of it, for the knowing of it. Do you see it there in the first part of verse 4? For we know, or knowing, brothers. Knowing. That's the very first phrase there of verse 4 in our English text. And it seems so obviously, to me at least, to be teaching that Paul must have made this doctrine of divine election to be very part and parcel of the saving gospel message that he preached to these Thessalonians. That's, that's evident here. In other words, Paul is, is confirming to them once again in a prayer that this divine election, this salvation, was a gift to them by way of God's choice. Both by Paul's knowledge when he gave it to them, when he preached the gospel to them, but also by his own teaching of the truth to them later in this book. And if he's saying, for we know, that means they must have had prior knowledge, right? For we know, or knowing. Well, what is it that they, that they knew? And here's what they know, that God has chosen them. They know that. They affirm that. And Paul is praying that they would give thanks to God for the affirming nature of how they are loved by God in the first place and how they love God so wonderfully. This is, this is strongly implied. This knowledge regarding election is calling these Thessalonians back to the affirmation of this electing knowledge. Well, how do we know that? Well, a couple of reasons. Here's the first one. Paul repeatedly reminds them, knowing. That's a reminder. It reinforces for them what they know about divine election, about calling, about what they should affirm and pray for and give thanks to God for. I want you to notice this. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. He's just, he's just going to remind them. He, he's bringing it again to their remembrance because this is a part of the, the very gospel message. And 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says this, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you. You see, you see that word there? Calls. It's just another word for election. Calling. Calling an election who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's that's another way of affirming the doctrine of divine election. We exhorted each one of you, and we encouraged you, and we charged you. That's speaking of the past, isn't it? 
So, so that's what we did when, when we planted this church, planted you here. We encouraged you, we exhorted you, we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Can that not be any clearer? God calls men and women into his own kingdom and glory. That's something to shout about. That's something to praise God about. That's something to pray back to God a praise prayer. This is, this is not just for you to pray for yourself. This is a prayer for you to pray for the other believers in this place, Paul is saying. And that's what we ought to be praying. We ought to be praying. Bethany Bible Church, we thank God. We give thanks to God constantly for you for this, that God called you into his own kingdom and glory. Look at chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 9. Here's more teaching and reminding about the doctrine of election. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. Oh, now we're talking about destination. And of course, we'll learn in a little while about predestination. God has not destined us for wrath. Well, what has God destined for us? To obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our ultimate salvation. That's our glorification. Who died for us, this is Jesus, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. In other words, there's another life to come. And, and, And we're being told God has destined this for you and for me. What a glorious truth. Look at verse 23 of that same chapter. Here's a sort of a kind of benedictory prayer. This is a prayer of Paul. This is another intercession for them. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. In other words, may you be glorified and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying you're saved. You are in the process of being saved. That's your sanctification, your complete sanctification. That's your glorification. So may your justification, may your sanctification, and may your glorification happen at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is in its fullness, in its complete package. And then notice what he says in verse 24. He who calls you is what? Faithful. You see, if you're destined not for wrath, but for ultimate salvation, the kingdom, glory, heaven, then you can bank on it because verse 24 says, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I can can praise a God like that. That, by the way, means you cannot lose your salvation. If you genuinely have it, you can't lose it. And there may be a lot of people who think they have it but don't have it. And so when they think they've lost it, it's because they never had it. This is, this is the doctrine of divine election and that we are eternally secure. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He's going to remind them yet again. Look at chapter 1 verse 11 about this great divine election, this calling 
Second Thess 1, 11, to this end, we always pray for you. And here's another prayer for Paul. It's bound up in this praying. This is a beautiful thing. To this end, we also, excuse me, we also always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. That's his election. And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see calling there? Calling. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought also, but, but we ought always, excuse me, to give thanks to God for you. Here's another prayer. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, and there it is, a, a, a love by the Lord. We'll see that back in chapter 1, verse 4. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you, there it is again, through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that you can see in two verses justification, sanctification, and glorification? Yes, I can, and it's right here in verses 13 and 14. God chose you to be saved. That's what it says. Through sanctification, there's the holiness of my life, there is my conformity to Christ-likeness by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And then verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our glorification. Boy, what a great passage to memorize. This is talking about how we were saved at the beginning how we are being continually saved, that is our sanctification, and how will we, we will be ultimately saved in our glorification. In just two small verses, this is the whole panoply. This is the, this is the horizon of the doctrine of divine election. I've called you, and we'll find this out in eternity past, and I will sanctify you, I'll make you holy, I'll separate you from from sin and sinners, and it's going to be a battle, and it'll be a battle for the rest of your life. And just as you are taking hold of the victory in that battle, I will then usher you in to the glorified state of being so that you will be sinless. This is, this is the doctrine of divine election. And, and if there's any question about it, it says in verse 13, God chose you to be saved. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Oh, now, I, am, I know, I know, gonna, there's going to be somebody who says, okay, well, here's the way that works. The way that works is God looks down through the corridor of time and he sees men and women who will make the choice to serve him They'll make the choice to place their faith in him. They'll, they'll repent of their sins. They'll believe in Jesus Christ. And because God is watching through the corridors of time, he will then see who chooses him. And then upon that basis of their choice of him, he will choose them. There's only one problem with that. It's not biblical. It's not accurate. And there's no text that ever says that, and there's no biblical text that ever affirm that, and there are no implications that even seem to sound like that. God chose you as the first fruits 
to be saved. We could say it like this. My faith, my repentance, my turning to Christ, my trusting in Him, my turning away from my sins, that's not the cause of my election. That's the fruit of it. That's the fruit of my election. If God hadn't elected me, if He hadn't chosen me, if He hadn't called me, I would never be looking to Him because of my depraved condition, because of my entire sinfulness. I I wouldn't. I would never. If my salvation was always and forever left unto me, I would never be saved because I would never choose Christ. He has to open my blind eyes. He has to unstop my deaf ears so that I am seeing the worthiness of Christ. He, He actually has to, and we'll talk about this in a moment, he'll actually have to Give me the gift of repentance and the gift of faith before I then believe and turn. I have to be given such gifts because left alone, left up to me, I would never choose him. And I think if you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, please notice that Paul also says here in reference to the doctrine of divine election that it was God's choice. It's God's choice. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. And how did He do it? He has chosen you, verse 5, because our gospel came to you. You see the link there? He has chosen you because our gospel came to you, which implies, of course, that what Paul was telling them was that God is choosing you to be saved. Now, how did Paul know that? Well, Paul may have known that by direct revelation. Because remember, not all of the Scripture had been completed. In fact, I told you when we introduced First and Second Thessalonians that this is one of, it's probably not the first, but it is one of the first letters that Paul ever wrote. Probably around... 50, 51 A.D., probably 17, 18 years uh, beyond the, the actual cross of Christ in 33 A.D. And so Paul is writing this, this gospel and he's going into this virgin territory and he could have been, it could have been revealed to him. In fact, there was a man from Macedonia who by direct revelation took Paul and said, Paul, please come over to Macedonia. Now, we, we don't receive that kind of word. We can't lift anybody's uh, shirts, like Spurgeon once said, and see the E for elect. We, we can't see that. So here's what we do. We just, we just sow gospel seed. We just throw it out there. God is the one who determines how and when that seed will germinate, right? So, so we don't know that. But Paul knew that, but even if he didn't know that specifically about the individuals that we're talking about, we could list their names, but, but we don't know, but we know this. He is saying explicitly here that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. So, you tell me. If God's going to use us, that is, you know, flesh and blood persons like you and like me, me in preaching or talking to others, you in the course of your life as you talk to certain individuals, maybe family members, neighbors, others, and you talk to them, do you, do you suppose that they will come to faith in Jesus Christ unless you speak the gospel to them? I would think not. The, the linchpin, uh, the, the instrumentality of God bringing people to faith in Christ, according to Romans 10.17 is, and 
and man comes, man hears a message about Christ and is saved. We have to talk. We have to, we have to talk to people. We have to not just live our life, but we have to use our lips. And we talk to people about the Lord and we communicate the gospel message. And what God does is that he uses the message of the gospel to choose those out of a mass of sinful humanity to repent and believe. And so, Paul is merely saying that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you. The gospel of God's grace comes to individuals through the means or the instrumentality of gospel messaging. Let's call it text messaging. The gospel text that Jesus Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he was ascended to his heavenly Father, and that one day he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. This is a gospel message. And when you talk to somebody and you communicate such a message and you encourage them, you enjoin them, you beg them to be right with God, to repent of their sins, to place their faith in Christ. Now, you may only have one shot at somebody. You may only have one conversation. Or maybe you have many conversations. Maybe you've had hundreds of conversations. But you're always praying and you're always asking God to open up blind eyes and unstop deaf ears so that the gospel could be heard by them potentially for the first time. Because God is the one who's choosing them. God is the one who's opening their eyes to the truth. And so Paul says this, God selected, God chose, God, God picked for salvation those to whom he would set his divine prerogative upon. This one is mine. This one's mine. That Thessalonian believer. Oh, and this one over here. And so when Paul throws the seed of the gospel their way, God chooses and they believe. This is the way it works. That's that's a part of it. That's why we call this first outline point the message. The message. We are knowing the Bible says. We're knowing. Number two, number two, let's call this the motive. The motive. The message is that Paul is praising God for the knowledge of divine election and his preaching of the gospel of it to those around him. Now we have the motive, the motive. Paul reveals that God's election is based on love. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you I've met some brothers and sisters who teach a kind of message like this from the Word of God, and they don't often link it as they should with this concept of divine love. They talk about the judgment to come. They talk about the wrath of God. They talk about the judgment of God. And all of those things are true. But notice what Paul says here in the text. For we know brothers, that is, brothers and sisters, loved by God. God. Do you want to know, my friends, what is the motive for God's electing purposes of men and women to faith and repentance? I tell you, it is love. It is love. Loved by God. Remember James says, don't be an enemy of God. I don't, I don't want to be an enemy of God. I want that phrase there. Loved by God. You know, there are some people in the Bible for whom it is said, and they 
were a friend of God. I, I want God to be my friend. I, I want to be loved by God. And this is the motive. I'll say it like this. It, it is the sovereign will of God to bestow divine love upon those particular persons who are, like all of mankind, wicked and undeserving. Wicked and undeserving. See, that's where you have to start. With the doctrine of divine, divine election, don't start with somebody who says something like this. Well, I believe that what you're really saying is that God is arbitrarily and capriciously saying, like uh, the tulip in heaven, I love him, I love him not. I love him, I love him not. And you're, you're, you're just seeing this, this uh, illustration of God just seemingly arbitrarily and capriciously saying, I'll choose this one, I won't choose that one, I'll choose this one, I won't choose that one, as though we're all deserving of being chosen. That, that's the implication behind such a thing. The, the idea starts in the wrong place. The idea there is, look, God should want to choose all of us. We're just so grand. I mean, who wouldn't want to love someone like little old me? I'm precious. God, God, God in a sense, is even obligated obligated to attempt at least to save everyone. And the only person who isn't ultimately saved is because they themselves have determined that he's chosen them, but they don't want his choosing. You see, the emphasis is on the exaltation of man. The emphasis is on how man is such a swell guy. The emphasis is on all of the wrong places. The emphasis is, is, is on the wrong syllable. It's, it's, it's all wrong. It, it doesn't go like that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't affirm that. Here's what the Bible affirms. Out of the mass of sinful humanity, the very moment Adam's choice was made, and then as the earth is populated with every human being that comes after that, who was ever born, who is now living and who will ever live out of the mass of the totality of all of those sinners, and they are all sinners, Adam and his progeny, we're all dead in sin and trespasses, that's where you have to start. That's where you have to go. You have to affirm the total, de- total depravity of the sinner before you ever start talking about the doctrine of divine election. If you start with the right premise that the whole of humanity is dead in sin, and then divine election comes and God says, I'm going to choose to love her or to love him. And it isn't anything about him or her. I can assure you of that. It is to exalt and magnify the character of God's love. That's that's what we're really talking about. You want to talk about the motive, it's God's love. It's His initiatory work in the past. By the way, this is uh, loved by God. This is... um, this is a kind of grammatical idea that's, that ought to be talked about. It's, uh, it's initiated in the past with continuing results. You say, where is that past? The past is eternity past. 
before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, the love of God was operable and he determined by that love, on the, on the basis of that love, with the motive of that love, to save some out of the mass of sinful humanity who didn't deserve it. To his praise. To his praise for his divine love. You say, well, the last five minutes, you've not only gone into the deep water, but those are fighting words. Well, I'm going to show you. Look at your Bibles. Look at Exodus. Look at Exodus chapter 33. If I'm going to show you something, I better show it to you from the Scripture itself, from the Word of God. What does it say? What does it teach? Am I saying what lines up with what Scripture is saying? That's the test. Exodus 33. This is God's sovereign prerogative now. Look at chapter 33, verse 19. And I'm going to go fast with some of these. You'll either write them down or you'll be turning to them and you can either write them down and turn to them or write them down, look at them later, or just listen. Exodus 33, 19. And he said, I will make, this is God to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And then notice this, my friends, and I, this is, this is the Lord's sovereign prerogative now, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Who, who's, who's, who's doing this? God's doing this. Does it sound arbitrary and capricious? No. And it isn't. Because remember, we're starting with the right premise, and the right premise is that everybody deserves hell and terrifying judgment because of their, their massive sinfulness. And if God decides out of the mass of such sinfulness, I will bestow mercy and graciousness on those whom I will show it, so be it. Now that's the hard one. That's the hard one. Because the human heart wants to say something like this right at that moment. Well, look, I don't have any problem with you showing graciousness and mercy on whom you want to show it, but you ought to want to show it to everyone. Uh, you, You ought to want to, if not actually, save everyone. In fact, let's just have universalism and let's just have a big party at the end. Let's just have everybody saved. Now, that's when people will back down a little bit and say, well, look, I mean, Hitler, Judas, Mussolini, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, I mean, no, not them. I mean, they they were just thoroughly wicked. So don't choose them. But, But me, I wasn't like them. So choose me because I'm not like them. So we whitewash the thing and we we assume, well, there's always somebody worse than me. So if there's somebody worse than me, don't choose them, but choose me. And God says, here is what I sovereignly have as a prerogative of my own will and purpose, and that is I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious and I will bestow mercy upon whom I will bestow mercy. And you say, and for what reason? Well, it's not arbitrariness, it's not capriciousness, it's this, it's divine love. It's love. Look at Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. This is, this is so crucial to understand. This is the sweep of, 
of divine election. I'm just going to give you a few passages out of the Old Testament, some in the New. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And this, this just nails it in terms of the emphasis on humanity and, and why that can't be God's sovereign way of making choices. It can't be this because chapter 7 verse 6 of Deuteronomy says, For you are a people, speaking of course of the Israelites, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And what does man want to do? He wants to exalt himself and say, yeah, I'm chosen. Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. If you don't know it, just talk to God. Because He says He's chosen me above, above all the other nation states of the whole earth. And that's the wrong magnification. He goes on and explains why. Verse 7, It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love, there it is, love, that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore, oh, that's an important word, isn't it? For we know, brothers, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. For we know, brothers, knowing, brothers, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Do you see the motive? Steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you this day. Look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Oh, please, look at these at your leisure. John chapter 15. Meditate on them. Mull over them. John chapter 15. Even though this is certainly including divine election as far as salvation is concerned, this also talks about service or ministry. John chapter 15, verse 16. You, Jesus said to his disciples, these that we call the apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Can it be any clearer than that, my friends? You did not choose me, I chose you. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is, this is critical. Critical to understand. This is just what the texts of the Bible say. I'm not doing any gymnastics. I'm not, I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Romans chapter 8. This is, this is critical. Look at verse 28. It's a very famous passage. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. doesn't mean everything is good, but they work together for good. For those who are what? Called. 
called, who are elected according to God's purpose. And what is the purpose? Well, you don't have to wonder what it is. Verse 29 tells you this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. There it is. We're not destined for wrath. We're predestined for glory. He also predestined for them. Here's the purpose, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the purpose. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And this is so sure, my friends, that verse 30 says that all of this, even including my glorification, is in the past tense. Notice it, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, that's election, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is a divine reality. It will happen. Everybody who has been destined not for wrath but for salvation, justification, that one will also be one day glorified. Book it. Look at chapter 9 of Romans, and you know I'd go there. Oh, Romans 9. Look at verse 9. For this is what the promise said, that about this time next year I will return. This is God saying, this is God answering the question, has God forever, forever forsaken his promises to Israel? That's the question. And here's God's answer. For this is what the promise said. Here's God's promise about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. You remember, he he promised that Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai at the time would have a son. And he says, it's going to happen, verse 10, and not only so, but also Rebecca. Now, this is down the line. This is children down the line. And when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they, the twins, the twins in the womb, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. In other words, God hasn't broken His promises. Election, the electing of His people will continue. But notice this, not because of works. Even someone saying, but I chose. But, but I chose. And, I, and I, knew, I knew things were bleak. I mean, I look at the world around me, and it's a very bleak world. And, and I'm not as bad as the next guy. In fact, if you took away the comparison with the next guy, I'm pretty good. In fact, I'm real good. And it's just that people have not found that out about me yet. But if they spent enough time with me, they, they'd find out I'm swell. And I certainly don't delete, uh, deserve death, hell, and judgment. But if you're telling me that it's not because of works, even my own work of placing my faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're using the illustration that it's two twins in a womb who hadn't even done anything good or bad, but so that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I Loved, but Esau, I, people say, I will not believe that. I will not affirm that. That is inherently and capriciously unfair. I will not tolerate that. 
I, I can't serve a God like that. You're, you're arguing in your logic from the wrong premise. Every single person in the womb conceived as a human being and who is then birthed out of that womb and who begins to live their first one day outside of the womb and who lives every day of their life until the day of their death is a vile, wretched, wicked sinner. That's what the Bible teaches. Look, I don't enjoy teaching this. I I don't enjoy talking about vile, wretched sinners, but I do affirm this. I'm one of them. It's the truth of my own condition. And the only way that this verse makes any sense at all is that out of the mass of these hating, hateful people in the world, and that includes all of us, out of the mass of these God-haters, Esau being one of them, Jacob being another, uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says that Jacob was uh, a swell guy, that he had a few bad breaks here and there, but he was in his heart genuinely above reproach. Not so. Jacob was as wicked and vile a sinner as Esau. And God said this, I'm going to have mercy on the one I want to have mercy on and I'm going to choose Jacob. They hadn't done anything. They were in the womb. That's what the Bible says here. And Paul himself anticipates the objection. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? It's not fair. It's not fair because... God ought to want Esau to love him. He ought to want Esau to respond to him in obedience. And you know what? This is where the Bible is asymmetrical. Because Esau is commanded to love God. He's commanded to obey God. He's commanded to respond to God. And instead, because of his hard-hearted wickedness, he chooses porridge instead, the pottage, his own, his own lusts. And you know what? Jacob did too. Jacob did too. Until God came upon his heart and said, I'm setting my love upon you in space and time. And I'm calling you to love me. And obey me. Did either of those boys deserve that? No. Is Esau getting what he deserves? Yes. Is Jacob getting what he deserves? No. He's getting grace instead. This is is what it says. And then look. Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, God says to Moses... Here's that quote from Jeremiah 18, or excuse me, from, from uh, uh, Exodus 33:19. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And in case people aren't getting this, he says in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will, 
It's not your will. It's not my will or exertion. It's not me wanting it so desperately. It's not on any of those things from the human side of the equation, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, my power of judgment, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What, it, what, what kind of name or characteristic is God referring to there? My judging power. Because the Bible speaks of Pharaoh, even though it speaks of God hardening his heart, it also says several times, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And because he hardened his own heart, God says, I'm going to show the whole world my judgment power. It's one of my attributes. And I'm going to show the world through this example of Pharaoh so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? In other words, how can he fault me for being in my Christless, God-hating condition? How can he find fault? For who can resist his will? And then here's Jeremiah. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath like to Pharaoh and to make his known his power like, like Pharaoh, he's endured much with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In other words, here, here's the question Paul's, Paul's asking and answering. If God has decreed that Pharaoh will not be chosen, and if Pharaoh continues to stick his bony finger into the very face of God and says, I will not relent. I will not let your people go. I don't love you, Yahweh. I don't serve you. I don't want you. And would it have been God's sovereign prerogative if he had so chosen at any one point during any of those ten plagues to wipe Pharaoh out immediately? Would he have been just in doing so? Of course he would. And the Bible says here, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Do you know that every single next breath of Pharaoh was an illustration of the patience of God? Because doesn't all sin, doesn't it call for immediate judgment? Do you know that there are people who are walking on this earth, like this illustration with Pharaoh, who've got their bony finger in the face of God saying, I don't want you, I don't like you, I don't want your sovereignty in my life, I will not have it, leave me alone, and they're still breathing. I mean, you don't do that to God. You don't stick your your fist in his face and say, I will not serve you, get out of my life. And some of those 
God says something like this. I chose from time immemorial, eternity past, to set my love upon you. And you will see, because I'm going to open your eyes, that I'm not to be trifled with. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my own son and I'm going to orchestrate his death on the cross for a sinner like you. And when your eyes are opened and you see the truth about your condition, the truth about your your lazy, shiftless life, the truth about your anger and your bitterness and your wrath toward each other and toward your Creator, you're going to be stunned by the love of His matchless grace. He's going to open your eyes. He's going to show you your sin. He's going to show you what Jesus did on the cross for that sin. And you're going to say, I am undeserving. Lord, how could this be anything else than amazing grace? And God's patience to not snuff out the Pharaohs and the Hitlers and the Mussolinis and the Pol Pots and the Saddam Husseins and every unknown sinner on the planet who lets them live even one more day, who lets them take even one more breath, is an exercise in his grand patience. Because you don't trifle with a God like that. He he could immediately eliminate you from the earth and you are immediately in the place of judgment forever and ever. So do you see? I told the men of our Wednesday morning doctrine study, can you imagine Pharaoh? He continues to say to his creator, I will not have you over me. I will not have you take this people, my Egyptians, and do with them what you want. That's why those 10 plagues worked out the way they did. And when the children of Israel were finally let go by Pharaoh, but not really, and and when a million people or more were traipsing through the opened river, the opened Red Sea, and as they were going through, and when Pharaoh and his army were going in after them, and after the last Israelite got up on the other shore, and the water closed in and on to them, and they all died, that is nothing but sheer sovereign grace. You say, grace? No, that's judgment. Yes, it was on Pharaoh and his entire army, But do you know what the word that went back to the Egyptian country itself? Your king is gone. Your your president, he's been vanquished. Your entire army, all your generals, all your colonels, all your foot soldiers, everybody has been completely wiped out. You are now not impregnable by any marauding forces around you. They're going to come. They know how vulnerable you are, and you can do nothing about it. And do you know that once they heard that these circumstances have occurred in their life and they were still breathing, that the grace of God should have motivated them to say this, I'm going to get on my knees because of all that I have seen and heard and I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to start following Yahweh God because He's the powerful God. 
He just opened up that Red Sea by miraculous ways. And, and he's just about to lead them by fire and, and by light. And, and he is the true God. And he killed our whole president and our whole army. And, and we are now completely vulnerable. And I had best be worshiping that God. I'd best be worshiping him. Not all these pantheons of gods that we've been worshiping. And you know, that's sovereign grace. That's sovereign grace. And because that's sovereign grace, every one of those Egyptians should have repented. They should have turned from their sin to follow Yahweh God. And of course, you and I know that the vast majority of them did not. And do you know, do you know that those million plus people, the Israelites, the called, the chosen, the, the ones who, who were and should have been saying, Oh, Yahweh, you are our God. We will serve you forever. And you realize that every single one of them except two, and of course later generations, 20-year-old and up, they continued on, of course. But the whole of them except Joshua and Caleb, they saw all of that. And they themselves, even seeing all the miracles, didn't repent. They didn't repent. All the miracles. You say, I sure would have. There's no question. I would have. Those dirty, rotten scoundrels. You see all the miracles? You're in Jesus' day, and you're reading the first 11 chapters of John's Gospel, and you're seeing all these signs and these miracles because Jesus is in your midst. And it says in chapter 12, although he'd done all these signs, and John only mentioned seven of them, all these signs, and yet they would not repent. My dear friends, you have no excuse. None of you have any excuse. You've heard the message. And the message is this. If you would follow Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. It is because of the love of God. The love of God. And he's opened your eyes to the truth, maybe even for the first time this morning. Bow your heads with me. We'll take up more of this next time. As you think of the truth about divine election, You have to start with the right premise. This is God choosing those whom He loves, not because of anything in them, and certainly not because of their choice, because they would never choose Christ. The truth is, God chose you, and He did it through the message of the gospel so that hearing a message about Christ, you responded. And perhaps there are some of you here today who have seen and heard this message of truth for the first time. You've really heard it. You've heard that God has a plan from eternity past and includes choosing you. And you've now heard this glorious truth that God loves those whom he has chosen to put his mercy and grace upon. And your heart has been ripped open and 
You understand your true condition, that you are a a sinner like all the rest of us. And now you're saying for the first time in your life, I need Christ. I need His, His love. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for a sinner like me. And I thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. Oh, Father, I pray for anyone here who thinking that they're the ones doing the choosing. And even if they thought that and they've never chosen Christ, may they choose Him today because He has chosen them. We love because He first loved us. Oh, Father, bring into Your kingdom, even today, those who are here who need the message that they are loved by you. Thank you for loving us. That is why we now love you all the more. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.